Hello, my middle-aged, turning very elderly, maybe not very young mutts. I am Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. We are back. This is our very first episode with, sadly, David and I without Rob, but we are very excited. This is going to be our first long-form episode where we kind of change things up. It'll be, in a lot of ways, familiar, in some ways different. But our number one change is that we have a guest joining us for these episodes. And today we have our one of our favorite horror podcast friends, Allison Broder of the Who's There podcast. Hi, Allison. So happy to finally get you on the show. Hi, um, I'm so happy to finally be here. I'm so glad we finally found time and movies to to make it work, even though they're like sort of depressing (laughs) movies, but we'll we'll get there. Just, uh, yeah, <laughs> I was saying earlier, I was like, I'm so happy to have Allison on and like excited to talk with you about films. So not excited to talk about these films because of the- <laughs> how depressing they are. I-, I have two goals for this episode. My first goal is I want to stop laughing at my own jokes. My second goal <laughs> is thank you. That was actually very hard for me. It's still very hard for me. My second goal is that I want to not cry while discussing these movies. No promises. No promises. Yeah. No. I, it's, it's not I won't cry. So I'll hold, I'll hold down the fort while you're both sobbing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Appreciate thank that. You. See, this is yeah. why we needed a, a true professional <laughs> podcaster on to like really carry, <laughs> carry yeah, exactly. these films for when we can't. <laughs> Wait, who's the who's the professional podcaster that's here? Because that you're not talking about me, right? Not. Oh, oh, well, it's what? not us. <laughs> it's not us. Have you listened to our show before? <laughs> yeah, of course. That's why I'm here. Well, yeah, and so we said professional podcaster, which you are. Don't say you aren't. You are, and you're one <laughs> of our favorites. So, can you tell um, our audience a little bit about your show if they're not familiar with it? So, my podcast is called Who's There, and the subtitle is a podcast about horror fans. Um, And I interview horror fans and horror creatives about why they love the horror genre. Because um, at the beginning of the pandemic, one of my friends who I'd met through a Facebook group for a now out of business horror podcast, he was like, hey, do you guys want to play horror movie trivia every Sunday night? And we're like, yeah, okay, cool. So we did it over Zoom. We did it for like two years straight. And I was like, oh, my God, so many different kinds of people are horror fans because like I was just like I'm always told that like I'm a weirdo. Like my parents don't get it. They've never listened to my podcast before. They're like, (laughs) we just we don't like horror. Um, But I'm like, you love Jurassic Park. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that that keeps coming up. So I, I, I found that half of our trivia games were just us talking about what we had watched and what we like and like our memories of watching horror movies so that's why I was like this is really fun and then so I just started doing it and I had no idea what I'm doing and people asked me they're like how do you start a podcast now I'm like you just hit record I don't know (laughs) I love your podcast so much I think like it really does help it dismantles the wrong word what am I trying to think of deconstruct Deconstruct. Thank you. It deconstructs the stereotypes that people have about horror fans. And it really does show that like we are everybody and everybody is us. And there are so many different (laughs) ways to love horror and so many different ways to intro into horror and different horror movies. And I always love your conversations about like, how did you get into horror and the, and the, the, the development of a horror fan? Well, thank you. And I, I always use the word 
in my intro destigmatize. Thank you. That's actually not oh. a word. It's not an actual word. I've tried to Wait, look it really? up. Wait, really? Yeah, it doesn't exist. So it's like I made un- up a word. I'm basically oh. Shakespeare. So Cool. For the record, we are all weirdos, but that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I, I feel like I can't not talk about your fabulous DVD collection behind you. <laughs> I, I um, always see. I mean, those are playbills. So, oh my god. Um, let's see. Oh wow. I mean, those oh, I can't I can't do that. Those are DVDs. There's also a book down there full of DVDs not in their cases. These are playbills. The other side, the white things, those are playbills. So, I think my playbill collection is bigger than my DVD collection cuz I just don't have Damn. room. I need a I need a better setup for my DVD collection, but yeah, I'm wearing my physical media or die t-shirt cuz I love me some physical media because when when people are like yay streaming like i don't want to be bothered i don't want to have to go look through all the apps and see (laughs) what's playing on what what streaming service i'm like i'm just gonna get the dvd yeah every time i see you or other horror fans showing off their dvd collection i'm like it it really is making me nostalgic for for some physical media which i don't have because of cost and space (laughs) Also, I want to catch up with you on the number of uh, theater that you've apparently seen. Um, yeah. During our long break between episodes, Devin and I saw The Grey House. Did you get to see The Grey House? Yeah, that was super, super spooky. Yeah, it was That good. was cool. I wish uh, Laurie Metcalf would have had more to do in it, but oh well. Ugh, I know. Yeah, but she was still very good. I mean, she's like, because she's not a villain. She's not like a spooky villain or anything, but she kind of plays the role where you expect her to be, I guess. Yeah. She she is the mysterious person, one of the mysterious people, but like the main mysterious person who you're trying to figure out. And Tatia Maslani is the uh your eyes, your your perspective, your audience surrogate character, I suppose. But a little more complicated than just an audience surrogate. Yeah, I hope this uh for I'm sure it's most of our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about. It was a, it was a Broadway play. <laughs> <laughs> it was a spooky Broadway play. Yeah. Um yeah. yes, about about the the old spooky house and and it's all women and it's it's great. Um it's All women, all little girls. It's basically a retelling of Annie minus Daddy Warbucks. Oh. Um huh. I <laughs> Huh. And minus That's the music. Sell it. So. And minus the music, yeah. Yeah. And not minus plus all the, the music. Yeah, there was there was some singing, I guess. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Some some dancing. Music was cool. It was it was it was weird. I liked it. It's not my favorite horror play that I've seen, but Cool. What is? Probably the woman in black in London was no, really great. So. Yeah, it's super effective. And also the last Ten seconds of a play called uh, "Shining City" that was on Broadway, like in two thousand seven. It's just only the last about... ten seconds. Yeah, and I'm not going to ruin it, but it's like <laughs> it's all about like death, if I remember correctly. But like, like a woman is being haunted, but then at the last minute, you see something. So oh, and oh, then shit. It's blackout. Cool. That sounds cool. I want to see more horror plays. I did see Woman in Black when it was at the McKittrick Hotel. That was really yeah, cool. Yeah, I saw that too. That was fun. Uh, there are some good jump scares in that play. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I only saw the movie. <laughs> I like the movie. It's yeah. good gothic horror. The movie horror. was good. Yeah. It is good yeah. gothic horror, and gothic horror always gets a bad rap. I feel like every time there's a gothic horror movie, everyone's like, ugh. 
we could go on in some uh, in some of our favorite ones, but I do want to lead us into our main discussion today, which will be on aging and elder horror and some other uh, some of other awful themes in there as well. So our first film, I guess I'm introing myself to take us into. Yeah, I guess you are. Yeah, I guess I it. am. Thanks, David. Devin, do you want me to introduce you to do the the intro? Yeah, because Rob's not here. That'd be great. Awesome. Yeah, it's very we haven't we haven't done it this way without <laughs> Rob. Devin, why don't you start us off? Mia sets out to make a documentary about the Alzheimer's disease. Her subject is Deborah Logan, a sweet retired switchboard operator, along with Deborah's daughter, Sarah, who is solely taking care of her mother. Mia and her crew document Deborah's daily life and the complications that come in the early stages of the disease. But the symptoms quickly escalate to something supernatural. Windows fly open, Deborah seemingly teleports on top of counters, she harms herself, unknowingly speaks French, and violently threatens Mia's crew. The worst night is when they find Deborah at her old switchboard, aggressively ringing number 337. Sarah sends her mother to the hospital for a supervised stay, while Mia researches number 337. The number belonged to a man named Henry de Hardin, who disappeared after murdering four young girls. It is believed Henry was using the girls for an old Native American ritual, but he disappeared before he complete the ritual with the fifth victim. Deborah's neighbor, Harris, admits to Sarah that de Hardin planned to make Sarah his final victim, but Deborah saved Sarah by killing de Hardin and burying him nearby. They now fear de Hardin is possessing Deborah, looking to complete his ritual, and the only way to save her is to find de Hardin's corpse and burn it. Lucky for them, Deborah has hidden the corpse nearby and they uncover it. However, before they can burn it, Deborah abducts a young girl, Kara. Sarah and Mia and the police follow Deborah and find her in the process of swallowing Kara whole, like a snake. In a fight to save Kara, Sarah and Mia manage to burn de Hardin's corpse, releasing Deborah. But is this really the end? This is The Taking of Deborah Logan, directed by Adam Robitel, written by Adam Robitel and Gavin Hefferman, and Deborah is played by Jill Larson. Hell yeah. <laughs> we haven't done a found footage movie since The Sacrament. Oh, yeah. I like, this is, I like that I one. I think this is only the second one we've covered, like, period. There's probably a reason for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what we wanted to start off this conversation with to get us going is... Uh, how do you guys feel like this movie is using the horror genre, the possession subgenre to talk about dementia and aging and whatnot? Do you think that that works? Do you think that that's a good vehicle for that discussion? I think it's a more effective um, tool to do it through the lens of or the, the medium of found footage than it is to just make a movie about someone that's old and weird. I mean, the visit also uses found footage, but they do it in a less a less appropriate or inoffensive way. I feel like it's a little bit more exploitative exploitative than Relic because of the cameramen that keep cracking jokes. But it's also I really like this movie. So yeah, it is really interesting to to approach this. Well, well, through the characters that are the documentarians in this film. They they aren't really like established as much. I feel like Mia and her and her team yeah. are 
very much in the background and not main characters themselves, which is not something I feel like I see a lot in found footage. I feel like normally we would see Mia, who is the the director of the film, to be a little more prominent in the story. But in this one, I kind of feel like we could have lifted, lifted her out and still have gotten the same story. I agree. It's kind of hard to determine who the protagonist is. I, I, I still want to say that it's Mia because I don't think it can be Sarah because I don't feel like she has enough screen time, although she still might have the most actual screen time of anyone. And I don't think it's Deborah because Deborah is our other, so to speak. So I, I still think that Mia is the protagonist. Which is weird because she's an outsider as well. So it's like an outsider perspective on this instead of someone within the family, maybe. Do you guys agree? I kind of felt like her daughter, Sarah, was maybe the protagonist Mm. because I really felt for her, like with everything that she was going through with her mom. And I was like, that seems so hard. While Mia was just like, she probably should have stopped filming at some point. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. She's also a main character, but I I sympathize more with Sarah. Yeah, I agree. Sarah's definitely like the more developed character. It is weird that Mia keeps filming because I feel like we never are really introduced to why Mia wants to push forward and keep this documentary going. I mean, she's a medical student. Um, she lies about having a personal connection yeah. to Alzheimer's, So, which makes me really not like her at all. Yeah. They, she very much starts off on the wrong foot. I, I mean, I think that she's just trying to make a name for herself. In some ways, it's it, it might actually be commenting on documentary as a whole. I mean, are documentaries generally exploitative? They're not supposed to be. There are like guidelines for documentarians in how to do things ethically. I, I don't watch enough documentaries that be really educated on this, but... I I know some they don't they don't always follow those guidelines. I mean it's the same thing in journalism. There are is ethical journalism, but then you have less reputable sources that don't necessarily follow the ethical guidelines. And it feels a little bit like Mia is fitting into that category where a lot of what she's doing is questionable. At least I think so. I mean we can we can talk about that if we think that her doc is exploitative and all those things. Yeah, I agree with that. I also want to know what kind of medical student is she where she has to make a documentary for yeah. her schooling? Like what? Oh, wait, she's a, she's a medical student? I thought she was a doc student. <laughs> I thought she was a filmmaking student. She's a, she's a medical student. I don't know. Well, Devin, you said she was a medical student. I don't I understood she that she is, was. But... A, oh, yeah. I thought she was a medical student. Maybe she is a filmmaking student. If, if you both understood that, then I, I might have just gotten it wrong. Well, I think it it says a lot that like we don't spend time learning about her character. And the time that we do spend learning yeah. about her character, she's lying about things. She's getting mad at her crew. She it, it yep. it's all these things that just like makes me not like her. But if she is a medical student, I think there is something else there to be said that if she is if we believe and and we should ask that we should follow up with your answers there too. If we believe that this documentary that Mia is making is exploitative. Maybe it then also comments on the medical community in looking at their subjects and looking at their patients, especially in this disease and how they treat their patients. Is that exploitative? She reminded me of 
the girl from Blair Witch Project that I, I feel like Heather. I feel like the movie Heather. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like the movie is making parallels there or making homages there since it's like her crew is the same size as the crew in that movie. It's the same uh, gender disparity that it's the woman in the lead, but then her two crew members are both men who are kind of dicks to her, but also she's kind of a dick to them. Yeah. Is she a dick to them though? Or did we just think she was being a dick because she was a woman bossing men around? No, there was one point in the beginning I thank you for asking that question because I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, that thank question. you for asking that. <laughs> but I there was one point in the beginning where I forget which crew member it was, but um he is filming something that actually is interesting. And as a documentarian, like you should pick up the camera when you see something interesting um, that you feel like would add to the story. And I mean, especially documentary, you should allow your team members to to find that because you're never going to see it again. You know, if they see something, they should film something. And then she starts getting angry at him that he's not editing when but he's also he's still working on the movie and, and oh, yeah. trying to make the movie better. But then she gets angry that he, he's not like editing footage. And it was like a weird yeah. Like, I get it. And maybe it is a thing where, like, she needs to reinforce her her authority. It can be that. But working in film, like, that is, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a gendered trait that I've, I've seen that in women directors. I've seen it more frequently in male directors where they're, like, need to assert that authority at all times. But I think it also dials up as the movie goes on, as the stakes get higher and it becomes dangerous and her crew very reasonably is like, hey, this is starting to get a little dangerous and maybe we don't want to be here. And she's like basically bullying them into staying, which doesn't work for, for one of them, at least, thankfully. Like, no, they're they're being really they're, they're raising legitimate concerns <laughs> about, about safety. Yeah, one of them almost gets stabbed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I would have been out of there like the second weird shit started happening. But I looked it up on Wikipedia, and it says they're a team of students who want to create a documentary about Alzheimer's. So they're not medical just students. Just students. They're just stupid students. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. I do want to go back to, do you think Mia's documentary is exploitative? Allison, you did mention that you think it possibly is. I think it maybe didn't start out that way, but once things start going really wrong in that house... She wants to keep recording because she wants to get good footage, and that's where she goes wrong, in my opinion. Like, things are actually dangerous and not, not safe, so, like, get out of there and, like, get Deborah to a hospital and lock her in a hospital room so she can't fly out. I don't know. Can't fly out, yeah. <laughs> oh, I wanted, I wanted to point out something that my partner actually noticed while we were watching it, the when she's in the hospital and she's walking through the hospital, if you look on the wall, there are snakes on the wall. Oh. Yeah. And also, de jardin means, in French, loosely, of the garden. Oh. So. Oh, that makes sense. Cool. I want to get back to the snakes question, but it's interesting. Why Why, why do you say that it wasn't exploitative at first? Because I actually think it was. So I want to I wanna know why you read that different. Because um, I... Maybe I'm wrong, but like I felt like she had a genuine interest in the disease. Maybe that was just when I thought she had somebody in her family that had dealt with the disease or had succumbed to the disease. But I just I believed her more in the beginning when she was just like, oh, you know, I just want to 
you know, like make this documentary. It's for school. And, you know, I just you know this is personal to me. So to be clear, I don't think there's a right and wrong here. I think that it is the, the movie wants you to question it, I think, because they they talk about exploitation several times. One of the first things Deborah says is, I don't want to be exploited. So the movie is definitely trying to make you ask these questions. But I don't. I, I think it's up to you to decide for yourself whether or not you think she's exploiting Deborah Logan or Sarah or whoever. The reason I think she is, is in, in even in the beginning, is one, she lied, which is kind of mean. And, and two, this is more interpretation, but there's, in the beginning of the movie, you know, they go there, they're talking about how they, they may or they may not choose this family, they're more so just interviewing them, and the family is clearly in it for the money that Sarah explicitly talks about, like all the hospital bills piling up, like they, they don't want to do this because they want to do this, they have to do this because they can't afford the bills. And then there's that shot where they're filming Sarah and Deborah fighting over this through the window, which first off, this is a private moment. It strikes me wrong for you to be filming that without Espe- their especially when consent. it's like, yeah, exactly. Without their consent, especially when Deborah was like, I don't I'm not going to do this. And she said no. And they can they keep filming. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Continue. No. Yeah, I agree with that. That's thank you for explaining what I was trying to get out. And also because I think that's why they chose this family. Right after that, Mia talks to the camera and says like, you know, things that she's not telling the family that actually I'm really interested in exploring the effect it has on the caretaker. That's what interests me so much. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think that she actually chose the Logans because she saw that there was that tension between Deborah and Sarah. And that was what she really wanted to explore more than the disease and is not being upfront with them about it. Oh yeah. That's, that's a good point. I had forgotten about that. I think like that idea is really wonderful, but I agree with you, David. I think the way that Mia goes about it is yes, questionably exploitative. And I do lean more on exploitative. I was reading an interesting article by Alex Hall called the taking of Deborah Logan as a faux queer archive. And we specifically have been talking about, you know, is this documentary exploitative of Deborah? But as you were bringing up, David, this documentary also seems exploitative of Sarah. Sarah is a queer character, and we see several moments throughout the film, as mentioned in the article that I referenced. Sarah, do you feel like the the documentary outs Sarah in in a sense, and in terms exploits Sarah's queerness? Oh, I hadn't considered that. I don't. They definitely filmed things that would out her, but I don't think that we're looking at an edit of their documentary. <laughs> so I don't think we can. The movie is weird because it's filmed through the camera, so it's acting as though it's documentary, but it's also like obviously not. They they add like musical stings when there are jump scares, which why why would that be there? <laughs> the the musical stings on the jump scares make no absolutely no sense. So yeah, I don't I don't see it as though it's an edit of the documentary. Also, like Mia survives the movie. So if anyone were editing it, it would be her. So even if she wanted to re-edit it to be a horror movie, she, she she wouldn't cut it to make herself look as bad as she does in this movie. Mostly I mean, maybe she does. I don't know. Maybe she's like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna make myself look bad. It's all for the yard. It's fine. I don't know. So 
Do you think it's exploitative then? Of Sarah? Yes, but I don't think we can specifically say that it is outing her because I, I don't mm. think that we're looking at the final product. I Like it could be, and I, I see where you're coming from, and that's really interesting. I, I don't know if we can conclude that. I don't know if there's evidence that that makes it into the cut. Allison, what was your read in terms of Sarah's queerness and how it's presented in this film? I don't feel like she was in the closet. I feel like Deborah makes references to mm. it a couple of times, like in like a disparaging way, kind of. But I don't, I don't think it was a secret, really. Mm. If we, if the cut of the film that we watched was the final product, I feel like it would be including parts that are like private to Sarah's like her side conversation with the cop and whatever like that wouldn't be appropriate yeah but I'm not sure I really think that Sarah's closeted so that's a good point because like even people who are openly queer when they're around their parents who are potentially homophobic which we do see that Deborah is homophobic it then like even if the parent knows this they don't talk about it it's like the unsaid thing but everyone knows it so yeah you that I, th I think that actually makes sense yeah I'm, I'm pretty much on the same boat as you guys I thought that the article I read does present an interesting question which is why I wanted to bring it up but yeah I, I don't I don't believe that she was necessarily in the closet but yes was not maybe totally open with her mother having her be queer is an interesting I, character choice I think mm. and one that does work in the film and I think it especially like adds that that tension between her and her mom, as you were talking about, David, and does make this full arc when they re reunite at the end a little more sweet. Or when you discover that Deborah killed DeHardine in order to protect her daughter. It, it does add that like that sweet mother daughterness. And going off the queer themes and the fact that Deborah kills DeHardine, you can read this movie as DeHardine being trans. Oh boy. Because you can. Like the no, more I'm I curious. think about it, I'm, the more I'm like, yeah. So uh, he's doing this ritual where he murders women to gain immortality. It's never elaborate on too much how that works, but we see that after his death, he possesses Deborah. That is the inference of the movie is that it's Dehardine possessing Deborah. And then. There's the slight maybe implication that in the end he winds up moving his soul to the little girl. Maybe. So it 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 seems like the ritual is immortality via possession. Mm. And specifically possession of women of girls. Now, you can say like that's just what the ritual is. That doesn't mean that he wanted to be a woman. It just means that he wanted to be immortal and this was the way he had to do that. But it, like in a movie that has so many women in it and the villain is a a man, the the like if they didn't want that, they could have just made the villain a a woman, but they made it a man. So now it is a man possessing women and then it it lends itself into that narrative. It's not necessarily politically correct in the way it goes about it it is very buffalo bill-esque if you want to read it as a trans thing where buffalo bill is you know killing women so he can wear their skin i say he because in the movie they say he's not really trans even though like okay that's a cop out it's there no that's a really interesting read on the movie i just see it as he was killing women and using them and possessing them and that's how he was achieving immortality 
as being like just you know the patriarchy just fucking over women again men just using women for their own benefit it's interesting that we have two different reads here and one obviously there is a looking into the gender here one is looking through yeah like a a sexuality lens and the other is looking through a, a political power lens it i did a little bit of research into the ritual it's not based on anything they they mentioned a native american tribe that they definitely didn't do this ritual or any anywhere close to it there's not much about any rituals involving like snake worship at least not in america some tribes but not this one that is mentioned do think that people who menstruate or women who menstruate are more powerful when they start menstruating that's as far as i got very little on it but it was interesting. And, and if we do, um, Allison, with your read, if it's something about, you know, men taking away the power so they can continue being in power and in this sense be immortal, then yeah, it makes sense that he would take down women in their first menstruation so that he, again, if women are more powerful when they're menstruating, taking away their power in that moment. If you want to go back to the Bible, Genesis, the Garden of Eden, the snake character goes to Eve specifically and gets her to eat from the tree of knowledge. And what the tree of knowledge does is when they eat it, they, they suddenly realize that they're naked. It's, it's basically a sexual awakening that Adam and Eve become aware of their own sexuality. They experience shame about their bodies. So you could kind of read that as a first menstruation. And then what does the snake want them to do next? He wants them to eat from the tree of life, which will make them immortal. I don't know if any of that was thought out by the creators, but it it kind of works out nicely with all the snake imagery, which I was wondering throughout the movie, like, why snakes? And this could be a reason why snakes. They probably just chose them because they're a common fear. Primarily in the Bible, but through a lot of mythology around the world, snakes have been looked at as a a symbol of the devil or a symbol Mm. of some sort of other worldly and primarily evil worship. One of the things I was reading about, snakes tend to, as you said, David, uh, present um, immortality, but in that also rebirth, Mm. because a snake is able to shed its own skin, it's kind of seen as, as, um, yeah, in a a rebirth in that sense. And that feeds into, I mean, as we usually see Ouroboros, which is mentioned in this film, in the ritual, the the young girls have snakes eating themselves carved into their foreheads, which again feeds into to immortality. I also see it as self consumption, and I think that fits a little bit into the disease itself that we see Deborah suffering from, which is Alzheimer's. In a, in her body is is eating itself; it's withering away. It is destroying itself from the inside out. So I saw a little more of that connection. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like all of that. Thank you. Can we talk about the snake shot? Ugh. Maybe that's what he did with them. It's an image. <laughs> it's an image. <laughs> David B. Jacobs. It's an image. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the that's the thing that everyone always remembers about this movie. Is it's that just shot. like a creepy pasta shot. It, it it looks like something where. Without any context, you would just find it on Reddit and be people like, what's the origin of this image? <laughs> That's a meme now. <laughs> so they just post the creepypasta goes, oh, what's the origin? Oh, no. Does it have an origin? Is it real? 
I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> I watched uh, an interview with the director and it, he said something really interesting that I really loved. He said, you know, this movie was very low budget. They didn't really have a marketing budget. So he's like, I needed to spend money on one shot that people would talk about and it would be the self-marketing that they would do. And that was the shot. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. That's how I I eat all my tofu. I just swallow it. (laughs) Are you a vegetarian? Mostly vegan, but I eat eggs again now. So Nice. I'm a vegetarian. I eat cheese. I think I'm not eating eggs anymore because I'm not because of moral stuff but because i seem to have developed an intolerance to it oh, and yeah. it sucks yeah i keep getting God. stomach aches um i stopped eating eggs for the past week and my stomach has been better so i'm God. like that sucks that probably means that it really was eggs mm. God, aging like is great i don't like aging <laughs> especially not uh yeah no Obviously, as you can tell, we are wrapping up Deborah Logan and we'll move on to to Relic, but I did want to give some space to chat with Allison and hear more. So you were talking about movies that you don't like. What are some horror movies that you tend to like gravitate towards or some of your favorites? I'm I'm curious. I really love psychological horror and uh, found footage horror, I've realized uh, since I started making like TikToks and reels. I'm like, oh, I just love these these found footage movies. But my top three favorites of all time are Cloverfields, which is found footage, The mm-hmm. Ring, which is psychological-ish slash ghost, I guess, and then Scream. Yeah, I like horror movies where there is like a good story. I feel like The Ring has a really good story um, and it has really great atmosphere. And then I also... I like some movies that people just hate, like the 2019 remake of Black Christmas. Um, I really love it. It's my favorite one. I think the original is kind of boring. This is something you've been doing I am on angry. Reels. Yeah, the, the, I, I love it so much. It is like, so Allison has been doing a series on her Instagram, which everyone should go check out, that is comparing remakes to their originals. And you're taking, you're making some very hot hot takes in those reels. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to Devin. I'm like, I don't I don't know about this Allison person. She she likes the haunting remake better than the original. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. I have yeah. I watched the remake Definitely. after you said that cuz I was like, okay, to be fair, I haven't seen the remake. I can't imagine oh. it's as good as the original cuz the original is a masterpiece. But let me watch the remake. So I watched the remake. It was not good at all. I mean, you know, <laughs> we can agree to disagree in that you're wrong. It's fine. <laughs> Um, uh, other way around, but yeah, we can agree to disagree in that you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I also, I really like Rob Zombie's Halloween better than John Carpenter's. John Carpenter's Nothing Happens. Um, it's just, it's boring. I The first time I watched it, I think my expectations were that it was going to blow my mind. And I watched it for the first time in like 2018 before the first reboot came out. And I was like, what's going on? There's nothing happening. He killed some babysitters and I didn't see anything and that's it. I, like, I feel like I'm being attacked. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think there's steam coming out of David's ears. <laughs> the haunting is just, I mean, it's Lily Taylor, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, what's his face from Taken? Liam Neeson. Um, yeah, he's Liam Neeson. The, the best part. 
It's such a pure, pretty house. I, I know Luke Wilson is also in it, but no, we're just uh, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson, same thing. The the scene. I feel like I shouldn't spoil the haunting, but the, I, the, it came out in 1999. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Owen Wilson's death scene. It was one of those things that like I watched when I was young, young, and that scene gave me nightmares for years. And because of how much it scared me, I think I fell in love with that movie so much. And I don't I don't agree that one is better than the other. I feel in my mind, like both hauntings are two very different films, but I love them both in their own right. But I do love the the remake of The Haunting. The CGI isn't great, but I just found the first 1963 one, while I will I guess agree that it's important, like I just it didn't really hold my attention that much. So while we're talking about your your reels, I also want to give you the space to to plug where people can find you. Any podcast platform, I'm finally going to start releasing episodes again on August 25th. And you can find me, whostherepodcast.com, on all the social medias. It's at whostherepc. So you can just find me there, reach out to me, say hi. Um, let me know if you want to be a guest. I think I did like a dozen interviews this week. But... Damn. Yeah, so I have some content for a little while. I'm a little I'm a little tired too. All right, now we're going to go into our second film. David, will you please take us away? Kay and her 20-something daughter Sam are concerned. Her elderly mother Edna has gone missing. The two come to Edna's house, an old relic with clutters of furniture and signs of hoarding where a black mold can be seen creeping about the walls. Kay calls the local police to aid in a search, and we learn that she hasn't spoken to her mother in three weeks. But after some time, Edna suddenly reemerges. Where did she go? They don't know, and Edna doesn't remember. She has a bruise on her chest that resembles the mold of the house. Worse still, she is convinced that something is following her. It's here. It's under the bed. Her age must be creeping up in her. So Kay decides she must move her mother into a home. But Sam isn't about putting her gran away in abandonment. She insists that it's their responsibility to look after her. She changed your naps, now you change hers. Isn't that how it works? But Kay can't be bothered and is unwilling to put in that kind of labor. So Sam takes it upon herself and decides to move in with gran. Gran accepts, but isn't exactly nice about it. After hearing that gran had accidentally locked a neighbor boy in a closet for several hours, Sam goes to investigate. There's something off about the closet. And didn't Gran say that the house seems bigger these days? Sure enough, Sam shines her phone light behind a row of shelves, illuminating the darkness to reveal a hallway. She creeps down the hallway and leads to another. And then another. This is impossible. The geography does not make sense. Clutters that seem like a distortion of the furniture and knickknacks of the house fill the space. Sam turns back, but her entrance is gone. While Sam searches the seemingly infinite and ever-changing labyrinth, Kay confronts her mother as her condition worsens, the moldy bruise on her chest expanding over her entire torso. Edna no longer recognizes Kay and lashes out. Kay runs through the house. She and Sam can hear each other through the walls. Finally, as the labyrinth walls close in on Sam, the space emptying out and the black mold growing, she punches through a ceiling, emerging through a wall into another part of the labyrinth. Here, Kay finds her and informs her that Gran is no longer Gran. They punch through another wall and escape as Gran collapses on the floor. Sam rushes for the door. This is their chance. They can just leave. 
But Kay looks back at the strange being that was once her mother and realizes she can't leave her. Kay coddles Edna, bringing her up to the bedroom, and the skin peels off, revealing some strange, dark creature underneath. Sam returns, and the three of them lie there. Kay looks at her mother, Edna, a husk of what she once was, and Sam looks at her mother, Kay, and sees a black, mold-like bruise beginning the form on Kay's back. This is Relic. Directed by Natalie Erica James, and starring Emily Mortimer, Bella Heathcote, and Robin Nevin. Beautiful. This film is really unique. I've seen I've seen this film before, and I was watching the second time. Really trying to, I guess I was trying to figure out what subgenre this is, because it kind of fits into a lot of them. I mean, it's the subgenre of aging, and like fear of aging. Mm. Maybe fear of your own mortality, and also estrangement from your family. I, I kind of see it. As a haunted house film, the ghost isn't necessarily literal. The ghost, alien, I don't know. So I, I kind of see it as an alien in the way, but I'm not sure if that mm. makes any sense or is based on anything. I don't think that this movie can really be taken literally. It, it is more surrealist, more experimental, and it's more about the emotions it's invoking than what's literally going on. Like, I think I saw a theory at some point that, like, black mold can actually be toxic and cause hallucinations so mm-hmm. i saw someone theorizing that it was actually the mold in the house that is causing them to hallucinate but that's interesting and i like it but it takes away everything that's interesting about the movie to me <laughs> sure yeah but what that tells me is that there are different ways to read this film and depending how you want to read it allison i the themes everything that you said is is what i want to take away from this movie Um, But David, you're right. Someone watching it with, oh, this movie is caused by black mold will take away different themes, I feel like. Something that is a little more women gone mad in that subgenre. And that's kind of why why I wanted to ask this question first, because this film is experimental and is so unique. There are many different ways that we can interpret it. And so I wanted to, to get a sense of where you guys were going. Definitely getting the sense that we were all on the same page, though. that It is more about (laughs) aging and growing older and suffering more yeah. from dementia alzheimer's this is one also in, in alzheimer's i don't one. think they ever say in the movie the words dementia or alzheimer's so from my research dementia i think is more like a symptom of several different diseases and alzheimer's is the most common of those we can see the symptoms of dementia in edna but the director natalie erica james was inspired by her own grandparents struggle with Alzheimer's. So there is that, but it is definitely not specific to Alzheimer's, I think. That it is aging and dementia as a whole. The black mold can also be like when it's on her chest and whatnot. It's like the degradation of the body. It's 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 a very impactful film. <laughs> if this was an Ari Aster movie, he would just describe it as a family drama. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it does feel very, very hereditary in that sense. It's interesting that there is like this other being that is a manifestation, but um, it seems like there is a physicality in that manifestation a little bit, which Edna does mention it throughout yes. the film. What was your takeaway on what it is coming? It is here. Did you have a take takeaway? Death. Death. David, when you brought up this question, I don't think I even like realized it would have been anything different because I agree, Alison. I, I, I thought it was death. I think I was 
seeing it more as disease. But I like what you're saying. I watched a short film that they did before this. That's a that was a proof of concept. It's kind of the same idea, but a lot shorter. It cuts out a lot of the bulk, and it's a different family. The woman is still named Sam, and it's her father who is dealing with whatever it is. Mm. And in that one, the little black alien creature shows up slightly differently because instead of them peeling off the skin like a snake, that works out, uh, the final shot of the short film just shows this black creature wrapped around the father and, and like staring at Sam as he's walking away from her. It's kind of a jump scare. It's 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 really creepy. So if you want to take that as like part of this universe, then you could kind of extrapolate that it's almost a possession movie actually. That mm-hmm. it's something it whatever this thing is, it is becoming her it's taking her place and it's slowly working its way in like in insidious when you have all the photos of the the old woman ghosts getting closer and closer and closer to him and the goal is eventually to take him over that's kind of what's happening maybe where the black alien is getting closer and closer and closer to her until eventually she becomes it but it also works as death (laughs) (laughs) I loved the shots in this movie, which I don't think I caught the first time. I don't think I was paying enough attention where you just like they pan to like a doorway or a window and you like see the black thing just standing there. Mm. But you like kind of don't Mm. unless you're actually focusing on it. I think I totally missed that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's in like the first half of the movie. Yeah, I definitely go rewatch it for that. It's creepy. Oh, but that means I have to watch this movie again. I'll keep that for my bone reviews. Um. <laughs> Rewatching the movie, I also noticed that they never actually say explicitly where Edna was when she disappeared. I, I assumed that she was in the labyrinth. I had remembered that that had been explicit, but I, it actually isn't. Do you guys also think she was in the labyrinth, or do you think something else was there? I don't remember them mentioning a labyrinth. I thought she was probably just at the place in the woods where that house was. Hmm. But I, I mean the maze of the hallways. I'm referring it to a, a to mm. it as a maze or a labyrinth that Okay. And it's always changing and whatnot. So oh, that that's where okay. I assume that Edna was, but it's it's not stated explicitly. But then how did she get out? Because she didn't like crash through the walls. Well, I, so that's interesting because the neighbor kid got out when he was trapped in there and he was saved by somebody. Was he in the maze, though, or was he just in the closet and didn't go any further? That was my understanding, was that he was in the maze. And I think I, I, I got that because Sam goes to that area after she, she learns about him being trapped in the closet. So I just connected them as one in the same. And the fact that he was stuck there for hours. It's open to interpretation. That's the thing. There's so much about this film that is left open-ended. Because I also don't think the closet is the only entrance or even necessarily always an entrance definitely not the only exit yeah <laughs> but i mean like Kay, when she finds sam she doesn't go through the closet she how does she get in there i don't know but she she doesn't go through the closet and there's a moment earlier in the film when Kay is going down the stairs and the shot just holds a little bit too long and mm-hmm. rewatching the movie, I actually read it like she when she gets to the bottom, she almost looks up and is like, "Huh, that was weird." And I read it like the stairs were longer for a moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, says the house seems bigger than it used to be. So I think I think the entire house is kind of morphing. 
Yeah. I don't think the neighbor kid ever went into the other, the new extension of the house because mm. they remember they saw like his nails. He was trying to get out yeah. the entire mm. time in my, in my reading of it. I don't think he went in there. Do you think maybe she was trying to feed the neighbor kid to the it? I think the explanation we get is correct that she literally forgot he was in there. But I do think it's possible that he saw it when he was stuck in there. Yeah, I guess because I had a different read because I didn't see the manifestation or take it literally. I I didn't think of that, but I, I do think it is something to consider. If we do look at the maze as a representation of as Edna's mind, um, which is how I read it in terms of like a, a, an aging woman going through dementia where, you know, your memories or how you are interpreting the world doesn't necessarily match how it used to. And it is tends to get a little more confusing is how I read the maze. I think it is interesting when we compare Edna with that, that cognitive disability to the neighbor who also has an intellectual disability where he himself is struggling with a a different mapped out mind and how maybe him clawing at the door is a different way to show how he is dealing with this disability. I, I, is, it, is that, am I using the right terminology here? Yeah, I looked it up and I, I think that's what I found was intellectual disability is the right term. Uh, not the term Edna uses in the movie. The, the word she uses no. is a slur, the R word. And it's like this awkward, prolonged moment when Sam is like doing all these nice things for Edna and like basically sacrificing her life for her grandmother. And then Edna just casually uses this slur and is like really bitter about it. And she's like, oh, fuck. Do, do, that's <laughs> awkward. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And I also did also read The Maze as... Edna's mind. I think that the house is kind of a representation of her body in a way. Mm. That it has the same black mold that's appearing on her. Um, and yeah, everything you said about how it's uh, it's expanding and in a way it's like her brain is so much deeper and more complex than we give her credit for. But it also makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And as Sam goes deeper and deeper into the maze, all the items start to disappear. It becomes emptier. It becomes more cramped. The walls are closing in. And you very much get that sense of of a progressing disease uh, as she wanders through it. Allison, did you agree as well or did you have a different interpretation? I think that's a really smart interpretation. I didn't actually have any thoughts on what the maze represented. I was too consumed with thinking how much I would be losing my goddamn mind if that was me <laughs> stuck in there as the daughter. Yes. So I was like, oh, my God. And how is your cell phone not dead yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think all of your interpretations are really smart. And yeah, I agree with the I did think the black mold was like representative of her her body and mm-hmm. um, her mind just getting moldy. And um, what's the deteriorating maybe i I wanted to go back to where edna went missing because allison you mentioned you thought that she was in the other house which i Mm. also uh interpreted i didn't even think about her being lost in the in the maze but now that i think about it that it could very well be but yeah i also thought she was in the other house 
they mentioned the the stained glass window several times and it, it is a repeating image throughout the film and the stained glass window is something that they took from the original house where I believe it is Edna's father who was growing old and where he died and we see and we do get flashbacks of of him in that house what what did you take away as as the importance of that stained glass window and her father I read it as sort of reminding us that this is being passed through the family. Hmm. Alzheimer's specifically uh, is a genetic disease or has genetic components to it. There's a type of Alzheimer's where if you have the gene, then you're going to get it. But that one's very, very rare. More commonly is there's a gene that puts you at greater risk for Alzheimer's. You can still develop it without Hmm. the gene. And the gene doesn't mean that you will definitely get Alzheimer's, but it increases your risk. And I think like 60% of patients or something have that gene. So because this is something that came from Edna's own father, grandfather, or whatever it was, and is now being passed on to her, and since we see the black mold originating there, I, I kind of read that as the genetic component. If you want to read it less metaphorically, then it is the literal curse that's on their family. But in this case, the curse is their their genes, which is a very real fear that, I mean, I don't know if you guys have had people with dementia or not, but I have. And it's definitely like, you think like, oh, is this going to be me when I'm older? Is this going to be my parents when, when they're older? And you you have that. It, it part of this is about realizing that this will be continuing even after she's gone. It's not going away. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that's very important that is touched in this film. Um, as you said, with, with Edna's father, but also, also through the, the three women specifically at the points where Kay is running to leave the house scared uh, and leaving Edna alone. And then she stops and is like, no, I'm, I'm going to take care of my mom. And it's kind of that moment where like she realizes she doesn't want her mother to die alone. Like her grandfather died alone. Um, and then when the three women yeah. are are holding each other at the end and we see Sarah, um, Sarah, sorry, Sam uh, notices the black mold on Kay's arm. We say that, that, yeah, this is, you know, eventually obviously going to happen to, to Kay as well. Um, and it, it it's that moment of like, well, I have to uh, be there for making sure that that this is hereditary and that this that this is not going to change. But I can make it the easiest that I can for our family. Um, but I agree that that hereditary thing uh, is what I took away from it as well. And that caretaker role is such a big part of this movie as well. That mm-hmm. before the really horror 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 stuff kicks in the actual plot of the movie is pretty much revolving around whether or not Kay and Sam are going to take care of Edna or put her in a home or what are they going to do with her? How are they going to handle it? And it's, it, you know, it's asking like, what is our responsibilities to our parents? What, what do we give up? Yeah. What, 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 what are, what are you guys, do you guys have any thoughts on all that? I think this movie is kind of proof, at least at the beginning, that just because you have kids doesn't mean they're going to be there to take care of you when you're older. 
Edna and Kay were completely estranged and Kay was pretty much estranged from Sam. She was like, are you going back to uni? And she was like, no, I don't know. So hmm. I think, oh God, I, and I know many people who are older and they're like, yeah, I don't want to, I just, I don't want to have to ask people to take care of me when yeah. I'm older. So I think it's a really hard thing to decide because as like somebody's child, you feel like you have to, or you're going to be judged, but also the aging person oftentimes doesn't want to put that on you, that burden on you. I always tell people like when I get to this stage of, I can't take care of myself, please just euthanize me. Everyone says that I say that. And yet we, we never actually see it happening. Like I, 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 I don't know of, Anyone who was euthanized when they had dementia, even though so many people seem to want it and say that they want that would want that. Well, we live in a capitalist country uh, where insurance companies <laughs> pay hospitals a bunch of money to keep people alive. <laughs> yes, but also like when you actually get to that point where it is your parent or loved one, there is still some semblance of life kind of and like making the decision to take that away when you can live for years with these diseases is like it's not easy yeah that's not you want to live for years with these diseases i don't want to live for years yeah in the other movie when they were like oh it's a really aggressive form as alzheimer's and i'm just like well that that sounds a lot better <laughs> i'd rather <laughs> just get it over with yeah, um quick. Even in this movie, I mean, they kind of, the ending of the film to me kind of reads like they're metaphorically representing several years of time over the course of like a few hours. Sure. That like, e even the characters switches, like Kay and Sam jump through their character beats pretty quickly that... After all of this, Kay is very quickly, that's not my mother anymore. That's not your gran. Sam is very quickly, like, she was all, I'm going to move in and live with her. Now she's like, we got to get out of here. L leave her be. Who cares about her? And then Kay has the switch again where she's like, I can't leave her. And I'm like, this is so much development so quickly that I, I, I read it as it was. it's actually a lot longer than that. That this is them jumping through all the beats that these characters will be going through over like five years. Yeah. There is kind of this, this sadness to it that like Alice and I loved your read of them all being um, distant from each other in the beginning. Uh, yeah. Kay from Edna and Sam also from Kay. Um, and there's something saddening in the fact that they needed their grandmother to be dying this the and this trauma to be happening in order to all come together at the end which like sometimes it does happen in real life that way that like people don't necessarily get along and so there's like this this selfishness um to answer the question of why people would let someone to stay alive of they 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 want their mother to still be there they still need their mother they still have unfinished business you know they're still or their parent rather there's still something that they're dealing with for themselves rather than the aging, dying person. And it's also the stubborn refusal to accept that this will happen to you as well, I think. Yes. With 
Sam being Sam is very hard on her mother for not wanting to deal with this. Yeah. That like you you are also estranged from your mother and I I mean it kind of circles around and eventually gets to the point that Sam knows what's happening but doesn't really understand it on a fundamental level. She probably didn't know Edna as well as Kay did. She seems very shocked at the the R-word slur that Edna uses. She does not have that same relationship. She has not seen all of Edna's faults. Kay has. That's the relationship that Sam has with Kay, which she is eventually going to need to face as Kay will also succumb to this disease. And now those shoes are going to be flipped and Sam is going to need to struggle with the same decision. And and Kay's seen her grandfather, I think, deal with this as well. So she also okay. has a better grasp of what's about to happen and how bad it's going to get. Yeah, Sam is definitely judging Kay for wanting to put her mom in a home. But I wonder, I don't know if their relationship is going to be much better after, you know, they get up out of bed at the end because she's like, oh, fuck, this is my, this is my future too. Yeah. So maybe she might avoid her until she gets to that point i don't know i don't see this as a happy ending like they've all dealt with they've all come to terms with their own mortality but like it's not a happy picture it's not a happy ending and sam will probably wind up having a disease as well when she's older yeah and then if she has kids then her kids will need to make those same decisions it is a cycle that keeps going but also it if this movie took place in america Oh, yeah, it's Australian. <laughs> yeah, it's Our Australian. second Australian film. <laughs> I think it's it's important to recognize that, like, our generation is the first generation that, well, that they say is not going to be more well off than our parents. So, like, we we're, we're might not have the ability to be caring for our parents mm. in the same way that they were able to maybe care for theirs. So, hmm. I think I think that's important to remember, too, that might get sam off the hook but she's she's in australia they have socialized health care so lucky that's true very different approach <laughs> it, it does make me curious yeah how different countries will then how they care for their old and i guess you mentioned it's australian i should have done a little more research on how australians do their relationship i guess with with aging being much different than ours i feel like in america there is this sense well I mean, the way that that our system tends to take care of old people is, you know, hide them away, put them out there in the house away from everybody else and let's just not deal with them. Like, that's very much how we are set up or at least how how the country treats these people. And I didn't even think about in comparing Deborah Logan and and Relic that, you know, we're we're two different countries and two different political systems here. But it's still the, the the commonality, though, is still especially seen through the caretaker to caretakers is that there is um, questions of how we should be caring for our, for our parents and for the elderly. Yeah. In a lot of Eastern cultures, uh, which obviously Australia, even though it's like the most Eastern place, is not counted <laughs> when we talk about Eastern cultures. Or but the most Western. East, yeah. But Eastern cultures tend to have more of a focus on taking care of the elderly. And, like, there are some countries where it would be unheard of to move your parent out of your house, where it's like that is just part of life is taking care of your parents as they get older. 
and re- giving them respect and treating them as like the wise elder or whatever. That's a big part of many countries, but that's not the case here in America. And I don't know if it's the case in Australia. Probably not because it's more Western based and based on what we're seeing in this movie, probably not. But I, I yeah, like you, I didn't even think to do that research because I forgot it was Australian. <laughs> I agree that, you know, if you can, you know, take care of your, your parents up until a certain point, but when they are so physically like debilitated and mentally unwell, like I feel like your home is not going to be a safe place for them. Yeah. Unless you can mm. give them around the clock care. And I also Googled it and I Googled Australia, Australian assisted dying. And as of November 28th of 2023, it will be legal and available in Queensland, okay. South Australia, Victoria, Western Australia, and Tasmania. Wow. To euthanize uh, Yeah, assisted dying. Yeah. Voluntary assisted dying is what they're calling it. Okay. They're not calling it euthanasia. Which. No. Yeah, and we should say earlier, it is illegal to do that in America uh, in most places. Well, what we do is we take you off life support. And I think the reason that dementia winds up not being so much a part of that is because when you have dementia, you still live without the life support. Mm -hmm. Like I've seen it where you take someone off life support and they're they're still alive and kicking for a long time, even if they don't want to be. I also feel like it's this is just me personally, but it's like it's a huge burden and very selfish if you're having kids just so you have somebody to take care of you when you're old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of don't think it should be the expectation because I'm not a medical professional and not everyone has a good relationship with their parents, especially since a lot of our parents didn't go to therapy. Yeah. Generational trauma can be passed down. And- to compare it back to Deborah Logan, you see it where Deborah is homophobic and her daughter is gay. Sarah is obviously still caring for Deborah, but I think part of that burden in that case becomes that when she is in her own home, she can't express her sexuality because her mother won't accept it. And that's that's pretty big sacrifice to give for someone. Yeah. Do you see these films and their representation? I guess the way that elderly people are portrayed in horror movies tends to be a little controversial. In these two films Mm. specifically, do you see it as offensive in the way that they portray these two old women? Deborah Logan is a weird one because I think it's actually commenting on that. It has these themes of exploitation and whatnot. I think it is trying to discuss whether or not this is problematic and discussing Mm -hmm. the objectification of older people. But it also is totally doing that, (laughs) that it, it has all of this body horror it's making a spectacle out of deborah's deterioration out of her disease out of her physical changes makes it a point like you just see her hairline receding back throughout the film that she like gradually looks more and more sickly Mm -hmm. you you see all those scabs appearing on her like there is a drastic physical transformation throughout the movie that is gradual and slow and gross and it like it's meant to be gross. It's meant to freak you out and make you be like, ugh, old people. I don't know. It's hard. I feel like I, I do think that Deborah Logan specifically does it a little more to extreme than Relic does, but I wouldn't say necessarily mm. to the point of it being offensive. I think for me, yes, they have body horror with the way that Deborah transforms throughout the film, but also she isn't always like it's not Deborah Logan most of the time jumping out and scaring 
you. It's a lot of other things that happen throughout the scene that is terrifying. And most people are afraid of dying. And a great way to represent that, of course, is through is through aging. And so how do you portray aging and therefore dying in a horror film if not it gets complicated there, you know, like we should be able to talk yeah. about our fear of dying. We should be able to talk about our fear of getting older as it is a universal fear. But how do you do that in a way that is also respectful to the elderly? I'm not I'm not really sure. Maybe the difference for me is that in Deborah Logan, because it is his found footage thing that's being told, at least through me as lens, even if she's not the protagonist, it's at least like literally her lens. And she's an outsider. She doesn't have a prior connection to Deborah. She isn't doesn't care really about this stranger. So I think in that sense, it becomes more a fear of this older person who you don't really have an empathetic connection with mm-hmm. and just like watching her die. Whereas in Relic, there is that connection that they're all related and they're all struggling with their connections to this person and what it means that I feel like it is more sensitive, more empathetic. I think that because it becomes more metaphorical as it goes on, and even early on, like instead of watching her entirely deteriorate, we're watching a black mold creep over her, that it is more a symbol of her physical deterioration than an explicit, this is how she's deteriorating. I think, maybe. I reacted differently to the two movies. Uh, what do you think, Allison? Relic definitely does this better. I feel like we see a lot more of naked Deborah Logan in mm, yes Deborah Logan. So, mm. and that's often used as like a "ew, look, look how gross that is" kind of way. So, and I think in Relic they don't they they don't do that. I think we see her like in the bath while she's stabbing herself. Yeah, but I think she's. She's covered, right? We're yeah, spoiling. she is. Fine. Yeah, she is. Well, she's covered like up to here. I thought it was more tasteful in Relic, and it's a more serious movie. There's really no comedic relief anywhere through it. It's super intense for 90 minutes, and super you're just wondering what's going to happen and where where this is going, mm-hmm. and how much longer you have to sit through this movie. It's <laughs> not fun. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I think that's really important. You mentioning the the nudity that is presented in both films. So, taking of Deborah Logan is through a male lens. It's a two male screenwriters and a uh, male director, and Relic is a female writer director. And I think because these films both are all about female characters, and specifically the older people are women. It is it would it is interesting to look at it through the the gendered lens here a little bit. Allison, I mean, like you said, when we were talking about Deborah Logan, the way that Day Hardine and your read on his take of the patriarchy and how he murders young girls, I love that so much. I think there is a way that society looks at older women specifically. I mean, the crone is so often seen through horror films as a scary old woman. That is always something that we are told to be scared of, which is we were always villainized, I think. Um, and so to watch them in these movies specifically, I think, yeah, the Deborah Logan does fall more into, into that, that crone and the body horror of look at the aging woman, whereas Relic is a little more tasteful and, and look at this 
women suffering from aging. Definitely. I read a book earlier this year that said that it's known as like a second adulthood for women after they go through menopause because mm-hmm. they are they're not dealing oh. with monthly hormonal fluctuations. So like they're just they're very steady and they like know who they are. Um, so and that I think that's why the witch archetype was created to delegitimize women as they aged and maybe came into the second version of themselves mm. in their adult lives. I thought you were going to talk about Robert Eggers, the witch, and I was like, ooh, how does that connect? I'm so okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Robert Eggers is not my not my director. I've tried watching that ah. movie twice. It's all, all right. Boring. You like you like the haunting remake better than the original. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it go. good. <laughs> Fight me. I will. <laughs> I'll come to Astoria and find you. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> There's also something to be said. There's a little more objectification of the body in the taking of Deborah Logan. These are two women who are who are losing their humanity in a sense. They're losing their memories. They're losing their ability to do everyday things that we are used to being called that make us human. And because we are seeing it through the caretaker's eyes or Mia's eyes and watching someone that we once knew become someone that they're not anymore and someone that they don't even know who they are, there is... Yeah, the dehumanization of a person, the losing of the personality. And it is a a way of saying objectification of the elderly because they are no longer who they once were, if that makes sense in my maze of explanation. To elaborate even more, it's it's literally, they are literally becoming someone and something else. Deborah is turning into this snake monster, which is actually Dehardeen. It's literally not her anymore it is a different person possessing her body and turning her into a snake monster and then in relic i mean it depends on how you read the black creature thing but we do see it as an external thing that becomes her so it is again she is mutating into this other creature k literally says that's not her anymore but is that that is that what people say like when alzheimer's is really taken over their parent or something and like they don't have any of their old self and their old memories left anymore can they be like well that's that's not even my mother or father anymore yeah people definitely say that people don't usually mean it literally like obviously it is still the same person but people with dementia very frequently have personality changes they'll sort of shut in a lot of the time there's also we talked about mental illnesses on this podcast before and I've often mentioned how like, oh, even though this one's using it as a horror trope and actuality, this mental illness does not usually make people aggressive. In this case, it it does quite mm-hmm. frequently. Aggressive behavior is actually associated with dementia, uh, either physical or verbal or even sexual. Which it, it kind of puts a basis in the fear of it, though, right? It's. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because you don't want to be afraid of your parent or someone, you know, that you knew growing up through your whole life. But if they do become aggressive or other things, yeah, it becomes hard not to be afraid. And that's why it's so easy to say that that's not the same person. And there is some basis for that. I mean, they, they are under some other influence. They. Yeah. I don't know if it drops your inhibitions or what, but I I don't think we really know exactly why people change so much. I was doing some research on this. 
there isn't a definitive answer at the moment as to why so many people with dementia become aggressive. Some people think it is a symptom of dementia itself, but that is complicated because it also is often circumstantial. They are in a pain and don't know how to communicate that. They are confused. They don't know where they are. They're lost. And that creates anger and frustration. It is uh, if you reach out to touch them to change them or whatever then they don't know why you're doing that and they freak out like these are also just normal responses that people have to these circumstances so it's often not clear if this is actually a symptom of the disease or if it's just the way people would naturally react because it, it makes sense it's it's scary to have this i don't think either well relic a little bit explores what it would be like to actually have this disease. I don't think Deborah Logan does. Deborah Logan is too outsidery. But Relic, when you're going through the maze. True. Because why why is it important that Sam is the one going through the maze? And to me, I read that that it's an exercise in empathy, that she is learning the actual extent of what this is, the actual what is going on with her grandmother and experiencing for herself, getting lost. And I mean, we were saying that the house is an extension of Edna herself. So it's like literally just being in the house, you are interrupted by this disease that's taken over her. Just being in her presence is so difficult and horrifying that like you can't see it as just a house anymore. Now it is it is the house that has Edna in it. Sorry, that was a lot of thoughts, like all just back to back. <laughs> is it after um, she gets out of like the maze that she's like kind of rethinking about whether or not she wants to move in? She's not even rethinking. She's like, let's get out of here. So here is where we give our reviews and rate these films. Our system is a one to four. Well, I guess a zero to four bone ranking with half bones in between. We love starting with our guests. So Allison, let's start with our first film, The Taking of Deborah Logan. Please give us your rating and review. So I like this movie a lot, even though it is problematic, as we've sort of discussed in, you know, the main character, Mia, and she's not exactly honest. But I do like this one. I think it just it it's very fast paced and it just, you know, gets going right away. So I think I'm going to give this, I think, three bones out of four. David, what about you? I'm I'm different. I mean, listen, I, there's no secret about it. I don't really like found footage most of the time there's been like maybe two or three found footage movies that i actually like so if you in the audience love this movie and you want to chalk this whole thing up to just oh he doesn't like found footage then that's fine you can do that that's a reasonable argument um i don't i don't like this movie i do think sarah is sympathetic but for the most part like it's not even just that i find the characters unlikable because that can be interesting sometimes so i don't i don't find them particularly interesting either like Mia is not unlikable in an interesting way. She's just annoying to follow. I like a lot of what the movie is trying to say, but I think that all of that is undermined by the format. I think this would have been better as a more traditional movie. Even keeping like the storyline about the documentary, fine. But like if it was more traditionally shot, then I just then you can do the jump scares without like 
forcing a music string that doesn't make any sense in a documentary format. We can we could actually see things instead of just like staring at darkness while they're running around and we have no idea what's going on because the camera is just going wild all over the place. Woo woo woo. I don't like found footage. I'm sorry. <laughs> One bone. One bone. Well, at, at least One bone. you like the nineteen ninety nine haunting a lot. So. <laughs> that is not true. I do not. No one believe her. Don't believe her. Oh my God. I big surprise. I am in the middle of you both. I loved this movie <laughs> when it first came out. This was a movie that I recommended to everybody. We talked about it all the time. I watched it so many times. And I just on this watch, I haven't seen it probably in in, in a few years. On this watch, I did not love it as much. Um, and it made me really question why I loved it so much in the first place. I think I have kind of grown tired of found footage over the years. I look at found footage in a different way now than I did then. I think I was very much a big fan of found footage when it started resurging after paranormal activity. Um, and and since then have kind of like lost my way with it. There are many elements of this film that doesn't make sense to me through a found footage format. I don't think it accomplishes a lot. In the found footage format, I would have been just as happy if it wasn't found footage. I agree with David. There are characters that I didn't like, but there there was just a way this film was made that I really enjoy. It's different. The performance of Deborah Logan is fantastic. Um, I'm always a big fan of old women in horror films who like go balls to the wall. I mean that you're so fucking cool. Like I want to grow up and be you. That that is so awesome that you decide that you want to do this crazy performance at your age and like go so far into it. Mad respect. A lot of the scares, they were fine. They were fine. But a lot of it just wasn't unrealistic. I have no idea why she teleports. I don't know. Was it scary? Not really. Was the eat her eating somebody scary? Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so, I'm going to give this two and a half bones. Moving on to Relic, Allison, please give us your bone rating and review. Okay, so I know I gave Deborah Logan three bones. Even though I dislike, I will never rewatch this movie again because it's just dark and it's just unrelenting. I'm going to give it three and a half for what it does because it is so dark and unrelenting. And I think it does portray aging in a less offensive way. Um, and I really love Emily Mortimer. And yeah, but I will, I'll probably never watch this again. So three and a half bones because it's very, it's very effective at what it does. Nice. I was so worried I was going to be the only one who likes this movie. Both of these movies was a second watch for me. The first time I saw Relic, I was pretty mixed on it. I, I, I liked the ending a lot, but I, until then, I was kind of not getting into it. This time it was, such a different experience just going into it and knowing where it's going i think like kept me interested through those slow parts i will still admit it has pacing troubles but i broke down crying at the end of the movie like i i was it 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 made me think a lot about like my own family and all those things like this it is very effective in putting a subjective perspective on this experience, like sometimes when you go through this shit, you can't just tell a straightforward story about it. Sometimes the only way to really express the emotions is to just go completely experimental, surreal, 
and let the images reveal what is really going on. Does that make sense? It's like a maze. Yeah. I love this movie. I'm torn between three and three and a half. Uh, fuck it. I'll go three and a half. I, I really love this movie. <laughs> So much more than last time. I was not expecting to like it this much this time. Devin, what do you think? I do not like this movie. <laughs> I I want to like this movie. The first time I watched it, I really didn't like it. And it was hard for me to watch it again this time. I, I, I will say I liked it more this time. The director I love. I love the tone of this movie. I love the execution. I love the shots. I love the direction of the actors. I think like as a whole, this film is very well done and I look forward to to what this director is going to do next which is a prequel to Rosemary's Baby which is really exciting oh what oh yeah so I liked that aspect about it but overall like I'm usually a fan of the experimental um horror films this one kind of felt a little much it fell in the in-between to me. It, it was sometimes literal and sometimes too experimental. And I didn't really feel like it was necessarily coherent all the way through. I am left with a lot of questions, which sometimes is totally fine. But I feel like just unsatisfied when I watch this film. It does suffer from from pacing issues. I did get really bored throughout personally. Yeah. So overall, I think I'm going to give this the same as Deborah Logan, two and a half bones. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's well done. It's just um, not a film that that I enjoy watching. Though, yes, I also cried at the end. It's it is emotionally wrecking. Do I not have a heart? I didn't cry at the end. I was just like, <laughs> these people are fucked. I mean, I yeah, I don't. P- I mean, personal I trauma. Such a personal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Devin, go back and rewatch like the first half of this movie just to see those shots where you see the thing. It's it's very creepy. But I agree that you can get distracted from this movie because of how slow it is i had to go rewind a couple of times because i was like i saw something shiny and then i was like what's going on <laughs> that's exactly what happened the movie has a lot of shots where it's like on the back of someone's head or where like the person who's talking is off frame and i love all of that because it's like even when you're in the same room talking to someone there's so much distance between them especially with family members especially with dementia it's it's very well shot smartly shot yeah i can't wait to see what natalie arca james does next she has two shorts on alter Mm -hmm. and they're both good one of them is being turned into a feature as well drum wave which is about japanese horror mythology Mm -hmm. interesting well that was our chat on uh aging and dying and dementia thank you so (laughs) much Allison, the young and beautiful Allison Broder who joined us today. <laughs> oh, my my pleasure. I'm glad we found a happy topic for me to come on and talk about. Yes, thank God. Oh my gosh. We right? were so worried that we were going to like depress you or make you watch a sad movie, so I'm glad that we didn't have to do that. These are two of my favorite romantic comedies. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. And thank you for everyone for listening. Tell us what you thought about Deborah Logan and Relic by reaching us at Cadaver Dogs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can reach out to Allison. We'll link all her stuff in the show notes. So check her out there. And thank you so much, Mutz, for joining us today. Bye. Peace. you.